Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am one of the senior editors of the journal Global Symmetry. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to join with me in a podcast with uh, Michael Swain. This is, in a certain sense, a continuation of the work we were doing with Susan Thornton, which was episode 13 on the question of the open letter on U.S.-China relations. I was, of course, interested in exploring with him uh, the development of the open letter because of his direct involvement in its creation. But I was also very interested in asking him about um, uh, reactions and critiques that uh, others had developed um, over the last period. So Michael is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he is indeed a prominent American analyst uh, in Chinese security studies. He was a senior policy person in the RAND Corporation concerning uh, China and issues uh, around U.S.-China relations. He is indeed uh, quite the specialist in uh, Chinese defense and foreign policy. He's written many books, monographs, journal articles, and book chapters on U.S. and China relations. So please join with me as we enter into the virtual studio for this podcast with Michael Swain. Well, it's a pleasure to have you in the virtual studio with us, uh, Michael. Are you there? Yes, I am. I'm here. Oh, good. Okay, so um, uh, I wanted to uh, start our conversation, obviously, with the question uh, of the open letter. Uh, this is uh, uh, an opinion piece that was published on July 3rd in the Washington Post and entitled, uh, China is Not an Enemy. And there were five principles, and I understand you were kind of the leading uh, culprit in this, but also Taylor Fravell, uh, Stapleton Roy, uh, Ezra Vogel, and Susan um, uh, Thornton. Right. And um, all of those folks, and you included, obviously, well-known scholars or experts uh, on China and or, uh, yeah, former officials, whatever. Um, and I guess the opening question really on the open letter that got that get, that was published is, why did you get, have this sense of urgency? What led you to prepare a public statement uh, early in July? Well, the timing of this in terms of early July, uh, near July 4th and all that was really just <laughs> accidental. I mean, there was no intention to have this come out in early July. But the, but the, the open letter really resulted from a long-standing discussion that has occurred back and forth online among a significant number of people who are involved in China policy-related issues, both scholars and policymakers and others. I mean, we talk you know, a lot online, back and forth, and there was, over time, expressed by myself in particular, but also by others um, who have participated in this discussion, the idea that, you know, the U.S. policy has just taken this enormous turn mm -hmm. uh, toward this unremittingly negative assessment of past policies, uh, U.S. policies towards China, China's current 
realities and the U.S. posture and what the U.S. should do about it. I mean, it's just it's this steady drumbeat of negative um, negative uh, policy statements, negative reporting, etc. There was just like no kind of variation in it. It was just kind of mind numbing. Mm-hmm. And and so many people, those who signed the letter, uh, the the five people who signed the letter up front, and then behind that five people, there were numerous others, about a group of about 20 or so people, who decided that it was worth trying to put something together and state something that really uh, more adequately reflected the views of a significant portion of the China policy-related community. And so we hashed out this open letter online, and then... um, then I largely went about trying to find people to sign on to it. <laughs> other than the other than the about twenty or so people who were involved in dra- uh, drafting it, I mean, they, uh, they almost all of them immediately signed on to it. Right. Um, those who didn't did so not because they disagreed with what was in there by and large, but because they either in general didn't sign open letters or you know they had other they had other reasons why they didn't do it, uh, and that's fine. So. Then I, you know, went about trying to get uh, signatories for it, and you know, it was uh, so I circulated it quite widely, and now we're nearly two hundred signatures. Oh, you're that, yeah, that many hundred signatures that mm-hmm. appeared in the Washington Post article. But since that time, there's been nearly another one hundred people who signed the letter. Okay, so so obviously people were. Uh, Signing on to, uh, for most, uh, a letter that had been prepared and uh, consensus reached. And how did you reach consensus, at least among the five and possibly the 20? Well, it was, the, it was really the 20. And the five yeah. of us sort of stuck our names out there as, you know, <laughs> because we all said, well, somebody's got to, you know, stand up here and say, this is our letter. Okay. Uh, so we basically then chose the five of us to do this. And, you know, it was kind of generally reflecting Ezra is a scholar, academic. Taylor is also an academic, but he's a young scholar, mm-hmm, so he mm-hmm. thought that was significant. And State Roy and, and Susan both have deep experience in government, and then I'm the sort of token think tanker um, <laughs> on, the, on the group. And I was also the one who really was, as you said, pushing this. So, you know, I, I signed on as well. Now, how we reached the open letter was just really a long – it wasn't a terribly lengthy process, but it was a fair amount of intensive back and forth. We started uh, very big. Um, I I initially proposed a series of propositions. Mm -hmm, We ended mm -hmm. up with seven. And they were quite detailed. And I wasn't thinking in terms of, you know, what's the right length for getting it published. I was just thinking in terms of how do we best capture our concerns Mm -hmm. and forget the length. We just, you know, how do we best capture our concerns? So I drafted a rather long piece that addressed this in in these in terms of number of propositions. And I think originally it was like 10 or 12 or something. I don't remember what the original number was. And then we started to work on it. And so people said, well, yeah, this is pretty good. This is a good starting point. And we went back and forth based on that initial draft. And at one time, it went right down to about one sentence or two sentences for each proposition, <laughs> because there was a view among some of the people that you know, concise, short, and punchy is better than long and detailed because people won't read it, particularly people in Washington. And 
So we went down all the way to that level, and then we went back up again. Mm -hmm. We eventually ended up with where we were, which was about uh, an 800-word piece. That and then we thought, well, 800 words, this is pretty good. It was, I think, it was, it was about 900 or so. And then we thought, hey, this is, you know, this could get into a paper. <laughs> and so, so then I, you know, just by happenstance, I sent a letter to a friend at the Washington Post and said, you know, not would you publish this? I said, would you sign this? And he said, well, I can't sign it due to a post policy, but I think we'd really like to publish it. So, you know, it went from there to back and forth with the Washington Post on publishing it. And they agreed to publish they agreed to publish the letter with all the signatories, all 100 of them mm -hmm. in their online version. And then in the print version, they printed the open letter with a link to all the signature in the in the online version. Now, I, I take it that you, you had an interest in, in showing a fair degree of support because uh, what you were hoping to do, I may be wrong, but was to push back against this notion that everybody in Washington now uh, agrees with any kind of the Trump policy line. Yeah, I mean, the, the primary purpose from my perspective, and I think from that of probably many of the people who signed this mm -hmm. letter and many of those who drafted it, is that we did indeed want to show that among serious people who have deep experience dealing with China um, from various perspectives, there is not a consensus uh, among policy-related people on the best way to deal with China. And that was without in any way you know, ignoring or whitewashing China's behavior um, we negative behavior. Mm -hmm. We we wanted to we wanted to argue that you know the way the Trump administration and the Congress, frankly, and and others in Washington are assessing and dealing with this is wrong. Okay, I mean, just yeah. is wrong. Okay, so what's interesting in part um, is uh, obviously the the support you got, but what what also is interesting and it was mentioned in. There were a number of related pieces that were published subsequently to the open statement that you made. Right. Uh, was a piece by uh, James Millward, uh, who is a historian, and he mentioned uh, that in fact there was a second open letter that was penned. This by a gentleman uh, James Fannell, I think is, and it was called "Stay the Course on China: An Open Letter to President Trump." Now. Mr. Fanall is a Captain USN retired and former director of intelligence and information operations of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And like your letter, there's a fair number of signatories as well. The reason I raise this is in a um, earlier podcast that you did uh, with colleagues elsewhere, um, you suggested that, well, there weren't a lot of military folk, but that was largely because many of them don't feel comfortable doing this and or feel themselves because of uh, patriotic concerns not to be seen to be critical of of the current uh, administration. And yet I looked at the signatories of that second letter and there were a lot of uh, generally retired military. So are we... Uh, does one now take the view that, in fact, uh, the military types don't support the position that you that you have taken? Well, I think it's it's hard to say because um, the people who we asked mm -hmm. signed the letter um, 
were people who were pretty senior. They were more senior in general than the people who signed the, uh, Jim Fennell's letter. Okay. And I did not go looking for large numbers of people at mid sort of level intel oriented uh, military people. Okay. Um, there were some military people who did sign um, and you know they they were not the senior people that um, that I initially had gone after. Um, and those people and these were people three stars, four stars, that sort of thing right and they, they just said that they would feel more comfortable not signing it. They didn't necessarily they didn't say in every case you know I don't agree with this, I won't sign it because I won't agree with it. Yeah. Some of them did say they didn't agree with parts of it quite strongly, so they wouldn't. But many of them just said that they just didn't want to do this because they didn't want to you know, get involved in this kind of policy thing. And as you suggested, I said in the other podcast, they didn't want to get identified with they're out there trashing the U.S. policy on this <laughs> and the national defense strategy in particular. Right. Um, so, you know, what does that say? I, I think it says, you know, military people are cautious about coming out with critical statements, particularly at senior levels mm -hmm. of retired senior level people. It also says, I think that probably, Alan, in, in general, it probably is the case that the military is more sympathetic to the military security aspects of the current dominant, you know, sort of USG administration congressional view than the view in the open letter. Okay. That's so they, they see China, I think many of them, many in the Pentagon, they see China as a major serious threat as reflected in the national security strategy and statement. And so, you know, I think many of them do feel that way. And that's been a real uh, significant turn in general Pentagon views over the last, but it's been over the last oh, decade or more. Well, you know, what's interesting as a, just a follow up on, on this second open letter is the fact that there is a lot of um, reflection by uh, Fanel and the people, obviously, who agree, who signed, uh, that this is, you know, a great deal about uh, America's commitment uh, to uh, democracy and the failure to really push China on uh, uh, on the democratic questions, you know, be it um, uh Shenzhen or be it where, you know, um, Hong Kong or whatever. And yet what's you know, troubling about that is, of course, that this administration doesn't seem to be that doesn't seem to be the heart of this uh, Trump administration policy towards China. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> that's kind of if if the emphasis is on, you know, democratic uh, standing up for democratic right. human rights in China, um, then, yeah, of course, uh, there the Trump administration is not on course um, from the point of in general, from the point of view of what its behavior has been by and large. But, you know, I don't think, I mean, my sense is I know Jim Fennell and he's a great guy. He's a nice guy. I mean, I fundamentally disagree with him <laughs> on, on this issue, of course, and and probably all the others who signed as well in many ways. But, I mean, it's, it's you know, that's not the main thrust of a lot of the arguments that are made by people who are in the military. Uh, they, they, make the, they make the argument that China is a existential or near existential security threat to the United right. States. Right. And that it's building its power in order, as the national security strategy and the defense strategy says, in order to overthrow the global order and to displace the United States as the global, the dominant global power, replacing it with a, you know, repressive, mercantilistic, 
undemocratic order that serves its authoritarian interests. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. that basically, that sort of very Cold War type definition of China and its objectives, you know, is is I think more the, the, the thrust of what a lot of these people think. Yeah, fair enough. I was just reflecting on the, the, the letter itself, but clearly you don't have that view and, and is, explore a little bit about why it is that you don't agree with that view of this kind of national security dimension, existential threat argument, which, you know, quite appealing within the context of a new Cold War, right? Because what else would one have if one wanted to frame it that way? Well, sure. I mean, I don't agree with it because it, by and large, it doesn't accord with the facts. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, it's really a, a hard argument to make that the, the Chinese government has shown that it has decided as a deliberate and necessary security policy that it is going to become the dominant global power and that it will, you know, eject the United States from Asia and that it is, you know, aggressive in the extent that it's going to use its military to coerce, intimidate, and in some cases occupy other powers in Asia and perhaps beyond. I mean, all of this is based on certain assumptions about um, Chinese statements and Chinese goals, uh, what's behind Chinese statements, China's dream, the idea that it wants a world-class military by the middle of the century, uh, and the fact that it is acquiring capabilities that are, yes, no kidding, able, directed at the United States in Asia in particular mm -hmm. and other uh, U.S. allies because, um, I mean, for, for, for advocates of this viewpoint, the, the, the argument is they're only acquiring these things in order to defeat us in war and to you know, push us out of the region. Why else would they do this? We don't threaten anybody. So when you look at this from the point of view of China and, and not just the Chinese government, but, but from a lot of perspective, a lot of people in China, uh, they, they believe the United States is as it's, you know, it's, it's the dominant power in the world. It's increasingly anxious about China's rise, its emergence as a, as a power economically and otherwise, including militarily, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that as a result of this and America's own insecurity and, and uh, anxiety and uncertainty about China, that it, that it increasingly is moving towards a containment posture and indeed a, a hostile posture towards China. And the Chinese have to reduce their vulnerability and their, and their exposure to this kind of potential threat. So the, the argument from the Chinese point of view, and it's a classic kind of security dilemma, is, no, we need to reduce our vulnerability. Right. We need to reduce our vulnerability to U.S. power because the United States is, guess what, indeed transitioning towards a neo-containment or containment policy. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of decoupling the U.S. and Chinese economies, uh, you know, the rhetoric that comes out of the administration and much of the Congress. I mean, how could you not interpret that? In that way, there's almost nothing said uh, about the need to have to cooperate with the Chinese. Right. Uh, look, at a, look at a fundamental issue like climate control, like climate change. Right. This, this is a major national security issue. It was identified as such by the United States some years ago. Today, the U.S. government acts as if it doesn't exist. It acts as if it um, doesn't really matter that much, and it doesn't need to have the help of others to deal with it if it is going to deal with it. And that includes the Chinese. And that's just a ridiculous point of view. Mm -hmm. But that's where we are. You, you can't say anything about 
we need to cooperate with the with the Chinese and just have it be something more than a throwaway line, which is what it is for the administration and for the Congress. But to be serious about it, um, you just don't see that anymore. And people who try to say that are shouted down. I mean, they're basically said, no, 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 you're dealing with an existential threat here. And so the primary focus needs to be on dealing with that threat. And so they don't recognize that from the Chinese point of view, you know, they have a threat and they're trying to deal with it as well. So how do you best deal with this fact that you're both transitioning in a case where you're assuming the other side is posing some very significant threats to your security for understandable reasons on both sides? Okay. So uh, uh, as you mentioned, there are seven propositions. Let me just go to one, Proposition 2. And in Proposition 2, the group argues that um, the adversarial stance, what we've just been talking about, what you've been talking about, uh, weakens the influence of those voices in favor of the assertive nationalists uh, in China. Um, And with a right balance, not the current balance, but with a right balance of competition and cooperation, uh, U.S. actions can strengthen those Chinese leaders who want China to play a more constructive role. What's interesting is, of course, one of the opinion pieces that followed on your piece uh, was by John Pomfret, who headed the uh, Washington Post Bureau for many years, uh, uh, Beijing Bureau, and he he reached... I say quite a negative, I don't know him, but quite a negative position on your statement. And what he said is last week's letter, that is your letter, the open statement, uh, in this wrong-headed vein by uh, repurposing the tired trope that we should tailor our China policy to support China, uh, Chinese leaders who want China to play a constructive role in world affairs. But all the evidence I've seen from living in China for nearly 20 years indicates there are no such Chinese leaders. What's your reaction to Pomfret's view? Well, you know, I I think his his view is at one level, it fundamentally ignores the fact that China under the reforms has changed in a major way in its society. It has, I mean, people, people assume that because Xi Jinping is more repressive, and he is domestically in particular, mm-hmm. that that he's more repressive. That you know all of the Chinese leadership is in lockstep behind this view, and that elites within China, economic elites and other elites, are also in lockstep behind this view. That all anybody who has any other point of view, despite the fact that China has been through thirty plus now years of opening and interaction with the world, and I dare say liberalization, if you compare it to what existed in the 1970s or earlier, I mean, it's obvious China has become a much more open and liberal society in that sense. But, you know, people just, they just ignore this and and just assume that because she has become more repressive, that China has now thrown off all of these changes and it's now committed to this relentless repressive policy and that everybody's in lockstep with this. Well, you know, Chinese leaders have to make decisions. They make decisions all the time about whether they're going to take a, a, a hardline view on something, whether they're going to take a more moderate view on something, whether they're going to be more accommodation or not. If you assume that they never do that and they're always in line with a more repressive, less accommodating, and more threatening perspective, then of course there's no argument. But I'm, I just fundamentally reject that argument. Right. Now, can you say 
okay, here are the leaders of the standing committee of the Politburo who are going to stand up and challenge Xi Jinping. Of course not. Xi Jinping right now is in a position where he could deal with that kind of challenge at that level. But he is not in any sense omnipotent. And his success rests a lot on the success of his policies. And his policies, in some respects, are encountering real problems, both domestically and externally. So China is not this relentless juggernaut under Xi Jinping, the re, you know, reconstituted Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. off into this new authoritarian future. There are people within China who have serious doubts about where China is going. And if the point is, in the open letter, if we don't acknowledge that and recognize that, and we just assume that everything is going to be as Xi Jinping wants here, and so we have to have this generally hostile view towards China, you can guarantee the Chinese will become less cooperative, they will become more hostile, not more cooperative, and the influence of people who would want to see change, not now, not next week, not next month or maybe next year, but want to see change coming about, their influence will decline. And, and if Pomfret thinks otherwise, I need to hear his argument because it's not very convincing thus far. <laughs> All right. So let me explore two kind of kind of theoretic but not policy approaches that warrant some examination given your open letter. One is this notion of convergence. Uh, I raise it because uh, uh, a number of different pieces have been written recently, tra- in quotes, uh, trashing this notion of convergence. Um, and uh, But in particular, and this is what I, why I wanted to raise it with you, was a piece in Foreign Affairs uh, written by former ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley. This was right no, not long after your open letter. In fact, July 18th is when it was published. And it's titled, How to Confront an Advancing Threat from China Getting tough on trade is just the first step. Needless to say, this is a rather aggressive piece vis-a-vis China. And she writes, Many Western scholars and policymakers predicted that economic reform and integration into the world economy would force the country to liberalize politically and become a responsible stakeholder. Of course, that's Zelik's um, refrain around 2011, uh, in the international system. The idea, sometimes called convergence theory, was that as China grew wealthier, it would become more like the United States. Uh, It was comforting, but it didn't pan out. Uh, So her position is, you know, didn't make sense. Now, before you you answer answer this, I, I reference our colleague, our good colleague and a colleague of yours, close colleague of yours, Ian Johnston, who wrote uh, it earlier, obviously Nikki Haley didn't read it, uh, uh, what he called the failures of the failure of engagement Washington quarterly, in the Washington Quarterly. Right. And Ian uh, made it quite clear that, uh, you know, at part of the argument that he was involved with, there, there were other parts, but part of the argument was, hey, you know, uh, the guys who were making the decisions uh, at the time, the Clinton administration and others, they didn't anticipate nor expect this so-called convergence. What's your reaction to this debate? Well, my reaction to it is that people are 
mixing certain terms and they're making certain assumptions here, which they really shouldn't be doing. Uh, if, if, if you argue that engagement, first of all, if you argue that the rationale behind engaging with China, i.e. having normal diplomatic relations with China and dealing with it uh, as a major power that has interests that you have to address, that this is dependent on democratizing China, mm -hmm. that, you know, that's on the face of it, in my view, absurd. I mean, China is a major power. It was a major power in the 1970s, even though it didn't have a lot of capabilities beyond its borders, it was still a major power within Asia. Okay. And, and it had committed itself to a reform process that would be, you know, increasing that power. And it is crazy to think that the United States should not be engaging with China. Um, because if the assumption is it's isolation, it's, it's to contain China. Well, then we're going to then we're going to have increasing problems. So that is kind of, you know, a, a ridiculous argument to say we're against engaging China. But I think the anti-engagers sort of interpret the term to mean that engagement was a policy designed to democratize China. Mm -hmm. And by that standard, it's failed. Well, the policy, I think, was designed to engage to, to, to deal with China in primarily the international realm to have it change and shift its policies in ways that would benefit the United States, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. So there was a there was a real politique international rationale for engagement. Mm -hmm. um, there still is, even though the Soviet Union doesn't exist today, there still is an argument for a geostrategic engagement with China that is not based simply on hostility and adverse and, and an adverse posture or some kind of containment or cold war posture. So, you know, there, I mean, engagement, I think still has a very strong rationale. And my second point that I would make is that there's a difference between liberalization and, and democratization. Mm -hmm. Official U S officials by and large, and Ian points this out, U S officials by and large did believe that opening China and engaging China economically will indeed liberalize many aspects of Chinese society. In fact, guess what? That's exactly what has happened. Now, China, I mean, and, and this gets into the whole argument that the uh, Trump administration and others make about China and its relation to the global order. You have this facile, easy throwaway line. Now, China is out to overthrow the global order. Well, as Ian has also argued through analysis that other people have, you know, that, that is just based on a gross simplification and distortion of China's relationship to major international regimes. Yes, China does not support the uh, democratic objectives of the Western-oriented um, elements of a democratic political rights uh, regime. Right. But does support and has supported a whole host of other regimes, including financial and trade regimes, including non-proliferation WMD regimes, including climate control regimes, including dealing with pandemics and international crime and terrorism regimes that, in fact, are part of the international global order. And so are, we're supposed to believe that the Chinese want to overthrow all of these when they benefited enormously from their involvement in these in these um, different dimensions of the global order. So, you know, the argument is really kind of ridiculous. Um, yes, there are elements where China is, is trying to change the international order in some ways, and they, in some cases, are a concern. 
It is not supportive of certain human rights elements in the international order. And the United States needs to keep standing up for that and against the Chinese position that it's only all about economic rights. Everybody just needs to have economic rights to develop and their political rights really aren't that important. Well, that's nonsense as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, I mean, it's not a, it's not such a simple, pristine issue as people in the administration and many in Congress would like you to think. Well, and I think, you know, there, there may be an element of quite, uh, of quite facile, uh, examination in kind of shifting from engagement to this notion of convergence right and you right. Cl you clearly distinguish that but let me let me there then go more directly and you know clearly a number of your propositions uh, reflect a concern about engagement with China and the balance between uh, competitiveness and and uh, cooperation right and I take uh, take you to the piece then that was prepared, written by um, uh, Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan. Uh, uh, Jake, I know reasonably well, and they wrote a piece in, in Foreign Affairs um, uh, on uh, August 1st right. called Competition Without Catastrophe, How America Can Both Challenge and Coexist with China. Uh, I raise it in part because both of these individuals uh, were um, former officials right. uh, in the Obama administration. And, and uh, uh, Jake, in fact, was an advisor to Vice President Biden right. uh, as well. Um, and, but, but clearly they, they appear to be in some manner within the big D democratic uh, mode, which is why I raise it. And right. what they argue is, although Washington remains bitterly divided on most issues, there's a growing consensus that the era of engagement with China has come to an unceremonious close. The debate is now over. What comes next? They follow with this line, most observers can agree that as the Trump administration's national security strategy put it in 2018, strategic competition should animate the United States approach to Beijing going forward. Now, now <laughs> I guess I wanted you to react to that view. Well, well I mean, it's, it's part of, I mean, it reflects Kurt Campbell, the earlier piece that, that really this. Oh, with Ra Eli Ratner. With Eli Ratner. Yes. Which basically was the you know the great statement that past U.S. policy has failed, right? And you know uh, engagement is no longer possible. The Chinese have become this authoritarian regime. Oh my God, we're all shocked by this. And <laughs> you know, oh my God, there are Marxist-Leninists in China. I can't believe it. Um, you know, and 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 the Chinese have decided that the kind of instability that is being created by rapid reform is requiring a strengthening of party control. Wow, what a shocker. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, the United States policy has never been Pollyannish about China. And it, it's, I mean, it just surprised me that Kurt Campbell, somebody who was deeply involved in some of this, mm -hmm. would think that or suggest that that was, in fact, the case. Right. You know, the United States at one point, the U.S. military strongly supported engagement, deep engagement with the Chinese military in order to um, try to convince the Chinese military that they can't really compete with the United States. That was one reason. 
See, okay. see all the great stuff we've got. See how great we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really compete with us. And, you know, uh, that was not a necessarily Pollyannish view. That was a view that was designed to increase deterrence in, in some important ways. And, you know, it's kind of funny that Kurt Campbell is now kind of suggesting that you know, he had nothing to do with that. I mean, that was fundamentally part of, of the DOD policy when he was in the government. And so, you know, you, you've got this assumption here that engagement never involved anything involving strategic competition with the Chinese. Now, you had the concept of strategic reassurance. This was something that Jim Steinberg, right. who was also in the U.S. government, uh, in the Obama administration, that he, that he had associated with. And, you know, it, it reflected the fact that while you have to have deterrence, um, in dealing with many issues regarding the Chinese and the security area, in Asia at least, regarding Taiwan and regarding U.S. allies, etc. Right. So, you know, one critical element of deterrence is reassurance. And reassurance means even though you will deter your opponent from doing certain really bad things that you don't want them to do, and you'll, and you'll be able to deter them because you have certain very strong and capable you know, military and political and economic capabilities. At the same time, you don't want to communicate to your opponent that you will use those capabilities to threaten their most vital interests, their most basic vital interests. Okay. So you have to reassure them that you won't do that. In other words, you won't use your military to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. You won't use your military to ensure that Taiwan becomes an independent state without China's assent. And so there is a reassurance aspect of this. And there were elements of that that Jim Steinberg was trying to capture in policy. So guess what? U.S. policy has always included elements of both deterrence and reassurance. And now the argument apparently is we can drop all the reassurance and let's just go to deterrence. Mm -hmm. Let's Let's just have a really heavy, strong focus on deterrence and the very vaguely defined pushback which has become the sort of operative word now in Washington. We need pushback. Uh-huh. And very few people define what this means, how it differed from the past engagement policy, and where you, know, where you need to really put your emphasis. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that past engagement policy was perfect, that it worked really well, and that everything's just hunky-dory, because it's not. There are problems with engagement and there are areas where the United States certainly needs to address uh, Chinese behavior, especially in the economic area, but also in the security area. And the United States has to focus on those and develop realistic policies that are going to involve some reflection of both Chinese, U.S., and regional interests, if you're talking about Asia. Sure. And, and right now, you, know, you just don't have that. I mean, that kind of broader strategic thinking about interests and and ways of, of appealing to the interests of other powers while you're defending your most vital interests, et cetera. I mean, that's just the, the, that whole kind of discussion has kind of evaporated in this, you know, in this mist of, you know, vehemence about China so that it's, you know, no matter what China is doing, it's wrong and we got to oppose it. <laughs> OK, that's fair, I guess. The, the reason in part that I raised the piece that they did and as opposed to Eli Ratner's uh, and uh, Kurt Campbell's piece, the earlier piece, was, right. you know, my concern that I'm uh, obviously they're not speaking 
for all in the big D Democratic Party. But has the Democratic Party itself now taken a much tougher stand uh, in terms of its view of U.S.-China relations? Or well, sure. I mean, I, I think, I mean, look at Chuck Schumer's uh, statement. He's, he said, you know, I differ with the president on many things, but on China policy, I'm, I'm in lockstep with him. I mean, the, the, the Democrats in the Congress, at least, have just rolled over on this. They've been very supine on this, and they've mm-hmm. just basically bought hook, line, and sinker what they've been told about the, the dire, you know, extreme existential threat the Chinese pose in every area and how we've got to go after Chinese influence operations across the board and all these other things that are being, you know, hammered on with a sledgehammer um, <laughs> in the Congress on a nearly daily basis. But um, I should say that one interesting aspect that came out of the open letter is that after the open letter uh, appeared. This is your open letter. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is the open letter that right. I and other side. I talked to somebody who is pretty influential or has access within fairly high levels of the Democratic Party. And he said, you know, it's very interesting, Michael, that letter has, along with some other things, prompted something of a discussion, if not a debate, within certain circles of the Democratic Party about its policy towards China. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. shouldn't we be thinking about, you know, something that's not quite as one dimensional um, as the Trump administration's policies and those a lot of those in Congress, shouldn't we be thinking of something that is a little bit more sophisticated and and has certain elements in it that combine um, both deterrence, uh, hedging and and some levels of, of cooperation? And so, you know, I took that as a, as a good sign. Now, I don't mm-hmm. know where this has gone. I don't know if it's led to anything, but most of the Democratic uh challengers now the ones who want to who are all up there campaigning yeah they're they're they have very little knowledge as far as i can tell about about china policy well they basically know about the trade disputes and they talk about trade disputes and they basically know about what's happening in xinjiang which is appalling right and and some of the other things that are going on within china um that's basically it i mean they don't know much about anything else and so I'm not sure what exactly their views are on where they'd like to go with China policy, particularly if they want to have a China policy that is not just simply seen as a simple, you know, reflection of or echo of the Trump China policy. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's interesting because as you as you pointed to uh, Chuck Schumer, he's always been hard on China, but it's basically reflected the questions of the economy and jobs and trade. Right. Um, right. You know, he was the one who a long time ago wanted to name uh, China a currency manipulator, right? Well before well before the Trump administration. But what surprised yeah. me about the statements that were being made, um, you know, in foreign affairs by a number of these colleagues who have links to the Democratic Party is that it's gone well beyond just trade policy, uh, but, you know, international security realms as well. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, it has. I mean, there's, you know, there's an assumption now. I, I think many people think the Chinese are developing their, as we said before, they're developing their military to throw the U.S. out of the region and right. dominate it as a step towards dominating the world. And, you know, you just get this kind of lockstep, straight line project, uh, projection of, of Chinese motivations um, when, in fact, um, all of these things are highly contingent. And they are dependent upon a host of different issues, not least of which is American behavior. And 
you know, the, the, the more confrontational and adversarial you're going to get and the less options you provide for cooperation or other kinds of things, reassurances, then then the less room there's going to be. Now, let me just add one thing, though, to sure. what I was saying before. I didn't want to give the impression that Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan's recent piece was just a sort of echo of the Trump administration policy. I think it definitely was not. And it wasn't. In, it was intended, in fact, of course, to try to set a path for whoever becomes the Democratic challenger to to um, to Trump. Mm-hmm. And, and so in that sense, I mean, there are elements in that piece that, you know, I agree with. I mean, there are elements where I think there needs to be a tougher uh, approach to China on certain aspects of its economic behavior, on certain issues to do with um, intellectual property and technology transfer, um, on issues to do with clarification of its claims in the South China Sea. Um, uh, there's a whole range of different issues where I think there needs to be greater attention being being uh, placed on on how do we increase our ability to shape uh, the way the Chinese are thinking about their interests in this area. And so, you know, I think in that sense, you know, I think it's good, but I don't think it needs to be to, to make this argument. You, you don't have to package this inside of this argument that says, oh, my you know, engagement has failed. There is now a consensus that it's over. And we've now got to have this, you know, heightened strategic competition that has to really define our interactions with the Chinese in virtually every area. I mean, you know, the problem is, how how do you exactly define that strategic competition in ways, again, that can, in fact, lead to advancing stability, economic development, protecting American and allied uh, security interests, etc., and not demonizing the Chinese at every turn? Um, I think they're trying to establish that kind of an approach, but when they do it on the basis of their arguments about the past and their arguments about, you know, the sort of one-dimensional nature of our relationship today, which is strategic competition, they undermine their options. Okay. Okay. Let me let me kind of end with this position. You know, in the end, and they talk about the need for the United States uh, to defend human rights, etc. So a, a fairly broad view, you know, that many hold, whether, you know, it's out of the Democratic Party or otherwise, but uh, they come to the conclusion, which seems to me to be a, a tactical one at the end, which surprised me. They say the best approach then will be to lead with competition, follow with offers of cooperation, and refuse to negotiate any linkages between Chinese assistance on global challenges and concessions on U.S. interests. Let me, Alan, yeah. that exact statement could have been said 20 years ago by the U.S. government. <laughs> I mean, that, that exact statement could have defined the U.S. policy. I'm not saying that, you know, again, it's, it was pristine, it was perfect. But, I mean, this is what you have. You get these sort of generalizations here that make it sound as if these kinds of positions are radically new. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, they're not radically new. I mean, yeah, sure, of course, the United States needs to stand up for its values. It needs to pressure China where it feels it is necessary or feasible to do so in upholding its values. And I think there are very limited opportunities for actually doing that. Um, I think that ultimately, you know, the evolution of China and the opening of China and the decisions made by the Chinese are going to make the changes that we would like to see happen if they're going to happen 
over time and not because the United States is out there hammering them every day, which is probably going to make it less likely in many respects. Mm -hmm. um, but I agree that you need to have a realistic approach and assessment of this. And um, if if Kurt and Jake are, are advocating for this in this piece and saying, you know, we're not going to start putting at risk all of the main elements of our relationship with the Chinese and even more worrying our neighbors by putting human rights right front and center in every policy engagement. Um, if they're saying that that is kind of like a counterproductive policy, then I'm all for it. Okay. I'm all for that view. Well, and just to, to end, the, the kind of from your perspective, the big picture, how do you see then, you know, assuming uh, the Trump administration will at some point end, how does one then view the possibilities for reconstructing uh, a more sensible uh, China policy, uh, e either in two years or in you know six years or whatever? Now, obviously, it's different if it's two years versus six years, but nevertheless, do you have a kind of general frame and direction that needs to be followed in order to get this thing better on track? Well, it's going to be tough. I mean, there's no question. I, uh, I don't think that four years of the Trump policies and much even less so if there are eight years of these policies are going to just be reversible. Mm -hmm. If there's so a new administration comes in and says we don't like the past China policy, in some ways what's going on in the economic realm and the technological realm now is really serious and it's structural and it's creating um, – it's really creating – uh, fragmentation and segmentation and, and isolation of, of different sectors, economic sectors that are going to damage the United States um, for some time to come, as well as the Chinese. So that's not going to be easily um, resolved over time. But what you have to do, first of all, you have to have a serious discussion in this country. You've got to have a serious debate, not this, you know, dominated by this, all these, all these slogans, yes. slogans revisionist power, existential threat, blah, blah. You've, you've got to have a serious discussion that involves elements of the public. And by the way, I should say the public does not seem to be, despite the recent Pew uh, polling, which shows an uptick, a significant uptick in recent years in, in their unfavorable view of China. But the public is not nearly as alarmist about China, particularly in the hard security realm as Washington is. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I take that as a good sign because most Americans kind of scratch their heads and say, really? I mean, it's that big and deep and serious and, and inevitable. Um, so it's, you know, that is a good sign. And I think what you need to have is you need to have a debate. You need to have a broader discussion about these issues um, by a broader range of people. And um, I'm hoping, along with some colleagues, mm -hmm. be able to embark on something that that is uses the open letter as a platform and to go around the country and talk with American the American public and you know both leaders and ordinary citizens about U.S. policy toward China, about our interests, you know, and and do it from a factual basis as far as we can tell, and do it in ways that listen and not just preach. And um, I'd like to try and do that. We just need funding. <laughs> well, well, fair enough. I, I guess my, my concern is this. As you're well aware, the American public generally isn't, you know, in, in the top priority list. Uh, right. foreign, foreign policy is not high 
uh, on America's uh, on the well, American it, public it's concern. It's going to become high. It's going to become high. You think? Yes. If if current trends continue, it'll become higher. I mean, it's it's going to get their attention. Okay. Because we're gonna we're gonna get in situations with the Chinese and also with the Russians that are going to demand their attention. Okay, fair enough. But don't you think at the end of the day? And without criticizing the the town hall uh, um, framing, that the heart of the problem is in Washington and needs to be addressed there. Yes, I do. I mean, I, I don't. I, I don't want to stop at saying we need a debate. I mean, the heart of the problem is in Washington. Public sentiment is important because it tends to influence people in the right. Congress, and you know, I think that is important. But sure, there needs to be a a response within Washington by a political leader needs to step up and say, let's just take a breath here. Let's just step back here and reassess some of our basic assumptions about what we're thinking about, where we want to be in Asia, what the Chinese are doing, what we want to be doing. And let's really question some of our assumptions. Uh, one of our assumptions, in my view, is that the United States will retain its past historical position as the predominant military power in the Western Pacific. Mm -hmm. That, in my view, is disappearing. What we're going to be left with is an unstable balance, basically a, a de facto balance between ourselves and Japan and the Chinese. And we need to make that balance stable. Mm -hmm. we, we don't need to be just assuming that we're going to double down now and stay well ahead of the Chinese militarily and retain our dominance across the Western Pacific. It ain't going to happen. Okay. Um, certainly not within the first so-called first island chain and possibly not within the second island chain. And a lot of American interests are in those two areas. So we have to be able to deal with this problem in a way that realistically reflects our resources and our commitment and that of the American public and doesn't make all these pie-in-the-sky assumptions about our being able to stay well ahead and the 350 ship Navy and all these other things that the administration and others talk about and don't really seriously examine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Michael, I, I really want to thank you uh, for taking the time out uh, and uh, discussing with us both the open letter and more broadly your perspective on U.S.-China relations. It's really been a, an absolute pleasure. Sure. Well, great. Thank you very much, Alan. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com. <laughs>